Hey, so we've been doing a lot of New Testament issues lately, New Testament questions. And as I was prepping for this episode, I was fully geared to do another New Testament episode, actually looking at pretty much the same passage we looked at last week, but taking it in a different direction and having a whole new playground, let's say, to play in. But as I started doing my show prep on that episode, I realized that a pattern is emerging. When we've taken Old Testament passages and stuck with a story from the Old Testament, the questions tend to be about the character of God, or like, what's God doing here, everybody? As opposed to New Testament questions tend to be more of the ilk of how should we respond to this situation, or how should we respond ethically to this, or what should we do when we hear this? And I guess that makes sense. The New Testament has a lot more, let's say, ethical orthopraxy a lot more talk about how to live for us that is specifically applicable to Christians, which I am one. Whereas overall, there's not so many practical applications from the Old Testament for Christians. But nevertheless, since we've done many New Testament episodes in a row, once this revelation came upon me, I threw my Bible down in disgust, raised my fists and said, we're going OT, everybody. And then a funny thing happened. I stumbled across a question that really doesn't fit into any sort of box. So I'd like to think this is a wholly new episode. Breaking the pattern of the 30 plus episodes we've already done. Today is something new. By the way, this is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. We are on, believe it or not, question 35. Which I've not so humbly, is Solomon a golem? Here we go. I'd like to start this episode out by asking you a simple question. Are you a fox or are you a hedgehog? A while back, apparently there was an essayist, a guy by the name of Isaiah Berlin. And Isaiah Berlin wrote this essay putting all thinkers, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, apparently I can only name Greek thinkers, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Spinoza, etc., etc., mostly centered on philosophers, let's say, but put thinkers in general into these two categories, categories of a fox or categories of a hedgehog. And the distinction goes like this. Hedgehogs think of the world with a very unified, central idea-specific lens. That is to say, they boil down all the information, all the facts of life, and try to come away with one or just a few simple constructs that describe all of life. Or if they're talking about like a specific situation or a specific event, they're going to boil that event down to a distinct, certain takeaway. One idea. One big idea. The problem with the hedgehog, though, is when you try to boil everything down and try to, you know, minimize everything, you're going to make mistakes. Or in trying to make your theory cohesive or make your story all the more pleasanter, you're going to miss some facts or misconstrue information or round those edges. And thus, maybe you're not quite telling the whole story or the complete story or the true story. Now, the fox is on the other extreme. The fox sees the world like a bag of spaghetti. Every little piece of information is out there, and you need to grab all those pieces of information if you want the whole story. The fox, being very smart and very sophisticated, grabs a hold of all these loose spaghetti strings, but doesn't feel the need to put them all together. So, for instance, if you're trying to answer a question like, what ended the Bronze Age? The fox is going to look at that and 
give you socioeconomic reasons, give you military reasons, give you uh, natural disaster reasons, and the fox isn't going to say. But at the end of the day, it was thing A. It was the sea people that invaded Egypt or whatever. It's not going to be one takeaway. It's going to be a little bit of this and that. It's like a recipe. Give me a little bit of shaved onion. Give me some garlic powder. Give me some Tony seasoning. All this together equals your answer. Whereas the hedgehog's just like, look, it was this. It was that the currency was devalued. Okay, simple. Currency was devalued. Bronze Age ended. Bada bing, bada boom. So which one of those are you? Are you the fox or are you the hedgehog? Depending on which answer you give to that, you'll probably have a different takeaway from this episode. And you'll probably either think Dante is stupid or maybe if I'm lucky, Dante's a genius. How did he pull all that together? (laughs) Hmm, That's probably setting the bar too high. I don't think I'm going to pull this all together. But anyway, let's get into it. My church has been doing a six-week, I believe, summer series on Proverbs. And I always... I always have to sigh, because I find Proverbs really jarring. Like, Because, for one, the majority of Proverbs is written by King Solomon. And King Solomon was known as the wisest dude around. And so when he writes these little Proverbs, which generally are like a little verse or a little clause of wisdom, that's very practical wisdom, right? It's not like eternal truth-type wisdom. Because sometimes these Proverbs seemingly contradict each other. They're like situational ethics, it seems like to me. But one of the problems with my little heart here is I have to admit that Solomon is wise. And I have to admit that because God says he's the wisest person ever. So one day when Solomon's a young man, he has this dream. And God speaks to him in that dream. And God says, and God says, what do you want? You're David's son. I'll give you whatever you want, Solomon. And Solomon promptly asks for wisdom. And here, I'll pick up the narrative here in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this for wisdom. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Okay, so the takeaway from that being, Solomon's a wise guy, so when he writes the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and maybe Song of Solomon, then we have to take all these poetry books and be like, in awe of his wisdom, and, you know, they're canonical books, they're in our Bible, so we have to read them as breathe from God. Hmm. But I come across these, and I just, I struggle with them. I struggle with them, I think, because I'm not a very practical person, I'm very idealistic. So when I read some of these Proverbs, I don't know, when it says, like, work hard in the middle of the day, because that's when the harvest is ripe. I'm like, okay, that's nice, Solomon, but there's some days when it's sunny out and I'm not going to be working hard. So this isn't like an eternal thing you're telling me. You're just like giving me old man advice. And I don't know. I just, I don't know what to do with that. So anyway, when I started this episode, I thought there's got to be a good proverb here I can pry out and exploit and make my point here about the practical Solomon wisdom versus the type of wisdom I want him to give me. But then I got sucked into this other rabbit hole. I read on the Drudge Report recently that there's a movement now that people should be allowed to marry robots, right? And that this is going to be the next social movement. 
or one of the next social movements that in time marriage with robots is going to be a thing that has to be legal you know like marriage with animals is never going to fly because animals can't consent but in time artificial intelligence ai will be able to say yes i will marry you and i was reading this article and then i just so happened to come across a yearly conference that happens every year obviously annual yearly in the czech republic and i guess it's called the agi conference the artificial general intelligence conference but in 2013 they changed that g to stand for the word golem the artificial golem intelligence conference and they were essentially substituting this word golem for you know robot and that got me wondering you know i've heard fables about golem in history and in film history class in college i remember watching the golem one of the famous silent films and so i wondered does this jewish hebrew myth the golem show up in the bible at all and since the old testament is written in hebrew you would expect that's where the golem would show up the answer to that question is yes but maybe more no (laughs) the word golem only shows up one time in all of the old testament and that's in psalms 139 i'll read here a few verses from that and this is a beautiful psalm by the way for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb i praise you for i'm fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works, O God. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Okay, we're not quite to the golem part yet, but whoa, that part's really weird theologically speaking. Like, before you're made, you're being put together in the depths of the earth? That doesn't really fly with any theology I know of. But anyway, moving on. It's poetry, right? Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Okay, that verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That phrase, unformed substance, is one word. Golem, or golem. Now, the medieval idea of golem is clearly something different than this. This unformed substance word seems to be, in this context, just referring to the ethereal soul, or the idea of someone's identity before they're born before they have a human body but a couple thousand years later by the time medieval kabbalistic judaism comes about there seems to be an evolution where this idea of a golem keeps growing and growing there's some references in the talmud and like first century a.d or first century ce that talk about this idea of golem just being a word that means like empty-headed and it seems like it starts becoming an insult as we move into like medieval time period but by like renaissance time period a new idea starts coming out and maybe it's linked to this psalms 139 where the writer talks about being made in the bowels of earth his unformed substance as a golem he's made in the bowels of the earth well there comes out this story and it appears like the initial writings we have of this treat it like it was an event that actually happened and there's several different sources and they all kind of come out about the same century the 1500s is the explosion of golem writings but the most famous one is the golem of prague and the story goes that there was a pogrom led by the holy roman empire against the jews specifically in prague and that the jews were being persecuted and terrorized and so the story goes that one rabbi builds a man out of clay a giant man we're talking like nine feet tall or something like that 
and he puts the four-letter word name, Emmet, which I believe means like real or truth, on his face, or some some versions of the story go around his heart, this clay man's heart. And just like Frosty the Snowman, once he puts those words on this clay man, the clay man comes to life. And the clay man protects the Jewish people from their persecutors. And the story goes that this is how the Jewish people are saved from this pogrom, by the work of this golem, this clay man, this man without a brain. And the fable refers to the clay man then as a golem theretofore. The fable continues then that, in accordance with Jewish tradition and law, the rabbi didn't want the golem defending Jewish people and killing people on the Sabbath. So every Friday night, the rabbi would take the golem's name off of him and the golem you know, would deactivate or, you know, would cease to be animated for all of the Sabbath. Well, one Friday evening, the rabbi is preoccupied or forgets this, and the golem rages and kills a whole bunch of people on the Sabbath, and it's horrible. And he's eventually destroyed by the rabbi when the rabbi takes off just the Shem, which is the first letter of Emmet, the golem's name that's written on him. He yanks that Shem off, and then the golem, like, dies. And I think it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing in Hebrew, because from what I understand, once you take that Shem off, his name then would be read as death. It goes from being the word for truth to being the word for death. So you take off that one letter, boo, golem dies. So all this is well and good, and the idea of golem also being an insult is very fascinating, especially when you look at the works of, like, Tolkien, right? The Lord of the Rings, right? We got Smeagol, little old Hobbit Smeagol that gets a hold of the ring and loses his mind over the ring, inherits a new name, an evil name. What is that name? Gollum. Gollum. He's always choking on it, right? Gollum. He's empty-headed now. He doesn't have control over his own head. It's really interesting that Tolkien uses that word. But anyway... This got me down the rabbit trail of how important names are and the Hebrew letters are in Judaism and to the Jewish people. Specifically, this letter Shem, the letter that the rabbi pulls from uh, the clay monster, pulls from the golem to deactivate him. Oh, by the way, (laughs) as the story goes, the golem isn't destroyed once he's deactivated, but he's put into the attic of the synagogue in Prague which supposedly he's still at till this day, in case he ever needs to be reactivated. Where he was during World War II and during the Holocaust, I know not. Seems like that would have been a good time to reactivate that guy, but I think there's some fables that go on that the Nazis stole him during that time period, but anyway, that's fan fiction, I think, more than anything else. Anywho, the idea of, you know, words, the Hebrew letters having significance, reminded me of the movie Pi, which is very much a student film, but it's by the now-famous director Darren Aronofsky, who recently directed the movie Noah. Darren Aronofsky was raised Jewish, I believe, even though, as far as I understand, he's not Jewish by inheritance. He's, he's not ethnically Jewish, but I believe he was raised Jewish. So anyway, the movie Pi talks about the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, and this goes back to Kabbalah and some pretty early stuff, early as in 1st century AD, wherein there's a belief that God has an unspoken name. Now, this is very biblical, right? There's the big debate over Jehovah or Yahweh, how to pronounce his name, and that comes out of the tradition that God's name is not spoken. So, in the Old Testament, one of God's names is written with four Hebrew letters, but there's no vowels in there. 
So there's a big dispute about how to pronounce it, and tradition holds that people didn't speak his name in those days. It was just written, but it wasn't to be spoken. But anyway, somehow out of this, especially in ritualistic, Kabbalistic, kind of sorcery versions of Judaism, God's name, those four letters, can be written out, or can be written like a cipher into a 72-letter name. And that is the full name of God, and if you know that 72-letter name, then you can wield, essentially, like, Superman-like powers. It's a key to unlocking God's power. And so I was looking into that, thinking, all right, can I sculpt an episode? Can I sculpt a good question out of this idea of, is there evidence that there's something to this name thing in the Old Testament? Is there anywhere we can look to in the scriptures that talk about God's name in this, like, powerful construct way? And maybe loosely there is, but, eh... Not much to go on. Similarly to the whole golem thing. I've just got that one verse that I've already read for you. And so there's not a whole lot to go on. There's certainly not enough to go from unformed substance, which is the only referenced in Psalms to golem, to giant clay man that doesn't have a brain that's saving the Jewish people in 1500 AD Prague. That seems to be quite a leap from the Old Testament narrative to the medieval story. But then I stumbled upon the Misha steel or the mesha steel and this is the oldest non-biblical document we have of the name yahweh showing up so to restate that perhaps in a clearer way there's not much evidence of the god of israel the god of judah showing up in other cultures writings other cultures that were around the same time as israel and a lot of that is because we just don't have much from that time period we're talking a thousand years before christ or there around you know there's not large amounts of papyrus pretty much all the things we have from those almost all the things we have from that generation that time period are stone tablets or clay tablets we don't have we don't have scrolls dating from 9th century BCE just laying around everywhere. And again, we can point to the burning of the library at Alexandria for that devastating fact. Man, what would we know if that library didn't burn down? Ugh. Anyway, this Mesha steel. I, I really don't know how to pronounce that. Mesha or Mesha? Heretofore, I'm going to say Mesha. This Mesha steel is really cool. Okay, so it's written by the Moabite king. Now, the country of Moab shows up all over the place in the Old Testament because the Moabites are, like, right next door to Israel for the whole duration. You know, a couple thousand years there, they seem to be right next door. Now, the Mesha steel is called the Mesha steel because it's a stone document, a writing written in stone, made by Mesha, king of the Moabites. And most archaeologists, most scholars agree that this document was probably made in 840 BCE, the year 840 BC. That is super old, and it's really cool we have that. This extra-biblical account talks about how Mesha, the king of the Moabites, tells the tale of how the king of Israel and the king of Edom and the king of Judah came against him and tried to destroy him and nearly did. But then, Mesha's god, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, pushed the god of Judah, the god of Israel, back. Pushed Yahweh back. Defeated Yahweh. And, you know, it's one of those stones that's like, Look how great I am. I'm the king of Moab. And I did this, thanks be to my god, Chemosh. Okay, so my first response to reading this was like, Whoa! <laughs> this is cool. Who is Chemosh? 
and just a quick Wikipedia search and a few random articles online, and there's a lot of interesting information about Chemosh. He shows up in the Bible in quite a few places. But before we get to that, this whole story that Mesha's telling is in the Bible. So that's really cool. Right off the bat, that's awesome that we have a really old story told in the Bible that's verified by certainly not a Jewish person, certainly not by someone who has any esteem whatsoever for the God of Israel, the God of Judah. And the two stories tell the same thing. So the account is mirrored in 2 Kings chapter 3. And this is when Elisha is the main prophet on the scene. So the story goes, the king of Judah and the king of Israel come together and the king of Edom, which by the way, anytime Israel is on the same side as Edom, the country of Edom, that's a bad sign because Edom's always bad. So all of a sudden, you know, Israel's being the bad guy, which is a little telling. But anyway, that's beside the point. So these kings want to come together to raid Moab and to destroy the Moabites. And the king of Israel comes to Elisha and says, Hey, Elisha, bring God along for us. Make Yahweh fight with us. And Elisha really doesn't want anything to do with this, but he kind of begrudgingly says, Okay, let me talk to God. And then essentially this miracle occurs where God brings water where there's a desert and then causes the Moabites to see this desert now filled with water. And I guess from far away, it looks like blood. So the Moabites think, oh, look, Edom and Israel and Judah, before they came against us, they fought each other and, you know, they had some skirmish. So now their armies must be obliterated. Let's go out and fight them. So that's what they do, except obviously they didn't actually fight each other. That lake of liquid is not blood, but just regular old water. So the Moabites come out away from their fortresses and Israel and Judah and Edom is able to just decimate the Moabites. And apparently they go city to city to city like this. And and the king of Moab, Mesha, is at his wits end and is about to completely lose his kingdom. And then here's the really interesting part of the story. Okay, and this isn't the focus of our episode, so we're going to have to do another episode about this soon enough. But 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 18 Elisha says this, This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So it sounds like Elisha is prophesying that God is giving the Moabites completely over to Israel and Judah. Now, skipping a few verses later, I'll pick up the narrative, 2 Kings 3, starting in verse 26. And this is talking about a specific battle. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then Mesha took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And it's not said specifically here in this context, but since we know that Chemosh is the god of the Moabites, we can infer that Mesha has just sacrificed his son to his god Chemosh. Okay, sorry for the interruption. Let's start that verse over. Then Mesha took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Okay, that's exactly what the Mesha steel says, right? Israel, Judah, they came against me, I fought them, and for Chemosh I destroyed them, and they went away from me. The biblical text says... Israel was winning, Israel was about to destroy the Moabites, but then, somehow, when Mesha sacrifices his son, 
great wrath comes upon Israel and Israel has to flee. It sounds like just from reading the text that this God, Chemosh or demon or whatever you want to call him, fights for the Moabites and destroys Israel. So my new question is, who is Chemosh? If Chemosh is just a false god, then why does sacrificing your eldest son to him cause great wrath to fall on Israel? How does killing a person, sacrificing him to a false god, result in victory for your party, for your side? Now again, Chemosh, as the god of the Moabites, shows up in a lot of Old Testament manuscripts. The first one is in Numbers. Okay, Numbers, remember, is just the fourth book of the Bible. It's considered part of the Torah. You know, the Torah being the first five books of the Bible that Moses pens. And so we read this first reference, and it says, Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king. Okay, but the more interesting reference to Chemosh shows up in Judges, a couple of books later. This is Judges 11, verse 24. Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Okay, so here in this context, we have Israel's God, Yahweh, versus the Moabite God, Chemosh. And they're both seemingly called national deities. Think of it like a boxing match. In corner A, we have the Israelite God, Yahweh. And in corner B, we have the Moabite God, Chemosh. And then in Kings, we have the battle between their two armies. And Yahweh's army seems to be winning until Chemosh, until a sacrifice gives Chemosh the extra strength and he fights back. Totally weird, right? But that's a question for another day. That's not our, our question here. We got to stay focused, people. Stay focused. Remember, we started this episode by talking about Solomon and his wisdom and how God literally gave him wisdom so that he would be the wisest person ever. The scripture says, no one will be wiser than you before or after all the days of man. In the history book, Solomon is said to be the wisest person ever. It's under that context that I bring up Chemosh once more. He shows up here. 1 Kings chapter 11. We're starting in verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So, to summarize, Solomon, son of David, worships Yahweh, receives wisdom from Yahweh, and then goes on and sacrifices and builds altar to all the gods surrounding him, including Chemosh, who apparently has some power in order to bring wrath upon Israel. So recall that the only reference to Gollum, or Golem, keep going back and forth on my pronunciation there, the only reference to Golem in the Bible is a man who is an unformed substance, which later then, through the generations, turns into the idea of an insult or the idea of someone who doesn't have a brain or isn't using their brain. Smeagol turns into Golem, someone who is not their own anymore. So I ask you, in all seriousness, not really all seriousness, <laughs> so I ask you, with half seriousness in my heart here, 
does Solomon turn into a golem? Is Solomon a golem? I've given you the evidence. Now you decide. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. postscript here. Uh, In the initial essay that Isaiah Berlin wrote about hedgehogs and foxes, he repeatedly uses Tolstoy, the Russian writer, as his prime example. And he talks about how Tolstoy was himself a fox, but Tolstoy lifted up as virtuous hedgehogs. Like, he thought the way one should be is as a hedgehog. And according to Mr. Berlin, Tolstoy's pain, especially in his later years, came from his inability to wrap all of the world into a singular idea. Like, he really wanted to. He thought that was the most virtuous thing one could do. That was the virtuous worldview to have. But he wasn't able to actually do it. So in this context, I want to plead the case that I'm trying to be like Tolstoy, and maybe I've fallen ill to the same problem, wherein, in my brain, I almost saw the connection of all these different points between Chemosh and Golem and Solomon and artificial intelligence. But maybe I didn't quite all bring that together. So, I humbly admit, you know, I I probably didn't do a good job with this episode, but it was really fun to do. Uh, And I hope you had something to take away from that. Besides that, please, 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 like us on Facebook. Facebook.com slash 365 Honest Questions. Also, I could really use more reviews on iTunes. If you're a listener, if you've listened to more than one episode, you have the power... Go on iTunes, write me a review, and if you would, give me more than just like a sentence. Give me, you know, a paragraph or something like that. If you do that and then send me an email, my email's easy, dantestack at gmail.com. I'll send you some stickers for free, and you'll have a warm place in my heart because it really helps the way iTunes works. That just helps us out the most when people write longer reviews, especially. Also, while I'm at it, check out Solve the World. It's an adventure story. It's my podcast my baby. It might take a while to get into, but if you stick with it, I haven't heard from anyone that stuck with it for like 9-10 episodes that hasn't eventually got addicted to it. So, check it out! Okay, see you guys next week.